beautiful humans and your dogs and cats in the room, fishes, dust molecules. This is the Wild Honey Collective and my name's Amelia. Today's episode is on how to do what scares you. One of my main goals in sharing the stories that I do and speaking as I do on this podcast is to really solidify the belief in each and every one of us, myself included, that our work is sacred and that it should be defined and lived by much more than our jobs. It should be defined by our calling to be of service in some way to the world. And I really believe that. And that's one of the biggest motivations of me telling the stories that I do on this podcast with my wonderful guests and the ripple effects that these stories tell that they send out into the world. We're taught to fear going outside of seemingly safe options for the work that is available for us to do and be paid for, right? Because we live in a society that leads us to believe that our worth and security is obtained through the acquisition of money. Now you might say to me, Amelia, that is not just a belief, it is a reality. How am I going to pay my rent and feed myself if I don't have money? And I am obviously not going to tell you that that is not necessary and that you don't have to do that. But I am going to say, firmly say with my chest, that there are more creative and fulfilling ways to provide for ourselves than we are often bold enough to believe. And at least as many of them are naturally occurring and cost far less money than we are led to assume as those that run our bank accounts and our physical bodies dry. But they take a little bit more creativity, they take a little bit more flexibility when it comes to when we need things in our hands and when we can devote the energy to going out and trying to get them. And I will admit, all of it can be a little bit scary, which is why. Today's episode is all about how to do things that scare you. The reason that I wanted to talk about this topic today is because I think unpacking why we fear certain risks and why we view them as risky is very important, and choosing wisely about what risks are worth our courage and energy is so key to helping us grow in our purpose and our sense of self. Our sense of accomplishment, our sense of what we are capable of, our self-pride and our self-love. Now, before we get all into the business, I just need to tell you that Wild Honey Collective is partnering with the Friendly City Safe Space and a coalition of organizers called Friendly City Funds Abortion to organize a fundraiser and community meal for the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund on October 1st, that's a Saturday, from 4 to 7 p.m. I am so excited and honored to be a part of this organizing effort and would love to see you there. We are raffling off local art goods and donated items from local vendors and local business owners. We have an incredible list of guest speakers getting ready to attend and we have a community 
baby shower, mutual aid, setting up and collecting donations, donatable items for babies, for expecting parents that you can contribute to at this event. Reproductive justice is about more than abortion, but in these times of attacking the rights to reproductive healthcare access, this is where we start. And through actions like the community baby shower, we are also expanding that work. And so please come out to be with us on Saturday, October 1st from 4 to 7 p.m. We are online at Friendly City Funds Abortion. And if you would like to contribute, you can volunteer to cook a dish for the community meal that we will be doing crowdsource style from our amazing community members who are generously helping us to provide food for this incredible event. And you can also come and donate your sliding scale donation from 10 to $50 to support the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund. Thank you so much and see you there. So without any further ado, how to do what scares you so you can go beyond your comfort level and keep growing. Let's start with this. We make decisions every day about how much risk to take and how best to expend our energy. As I said before, we're taught to fear going outside of seemingly safe options for the work that is available for us to do and be paid for in the world. Because we live in a society that leads us to believe that our worth and security is guaranteed and contingent upon our ability to acquire and secure and protect our material wealth. So we're always, based on that culture, but also just based on the way that our brains are wired, we are always subconsciously or consciously looking for ways to avoid discomfort. And that can be too much uncertainty, too much change, or too much effort to learn and figure out how to do something different, how to do something new. On a daily basis, we go through all kinds of protective mechanisms that we've constructed, mostly subconsciously, to maintain a sense of predictability and pleasure, ease, and to maintain the expectations that we've set ahead of time about how we will show up in this moment. Now fear is an expectation that something will be dangerous, painful, or threatening. And this is something that we use to protect ourselves, and it is a good thing. But in order to use our natural tendency towards predictability and routine and ease, cognitive ease, in order to use that to, ad to our advantage, we need to be aware of this preoccupation that our minds have with what we know and what we think that we can expect. So that even when we face disruption and change, we can take a step back from our mind's automatic alert system that's telling us, oh, avoid, 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 whatever the fuck that thing is that we don't know what it is or what it's going to happen and 
reorient that response pathway to what we can figure out about this thing, what kind of expectations we can realistically have about this thing, and how can I work with the potential outcomes of engaging with this? What outcomes might I expect and how might I respond? Going through that process in your brain can really de-escalate that fear response that says avoid, 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 and allow you to approach what is new and uncomfortable with the best information in sort of a, a rational and emotionally neutral manner that you can. So this will not always seem like such a big deal in your daily life, especially if you do have easy access to some of these comforting things that help ease your physical and mental response to discomfort. When speaking about something that forces us to go against learned norms that have been deeply conditioned into us, however, like the timing, longevity, and external validation of our relationships, of our vocations, of our family systems, and ways of expressing who we are through how we look or how we choose to live our lives, these dynamics related to fear become a lot more overwhelming and sometimes paralyzing. I put up a question box on my Instagram and had a lot of people answer me directly about this question of what it is that you most desire and fear. And many different people gave responses somewhere along the lines of parenthood, freedom from loved ones, stepping into your full potential, and the enormity of everything that you are seeking. Just measuring the person you think you are with the person you think you can be and what the attainment of your goals and dreams means about who you are. It's scary to imagine getting the things we want, because then we realize that we could lose them. And if we attach our identities too much to these things, lose ourselves. If you're looking at approaching any of these things, you're going to be very preoccupied with the desire to regain a sense of certainty and predictability that you've lost when you've started embarking on something new. You might attribute this sense of uncertainty to the inherent danger of the thing you are considering taking action on instead of the way that you are interpreting it. We've been taught to fear deviations from the predictability of what we call normal life or a daily existence that doesn't trigger our fear response to the unknown. So I'm sitting before you right now doing something that scares me. Starting this podcast was scary last year, and it is still scary every time I sit down to record an episode, especially when I have to do it by myself, which is why whenever I need a break to sip some tea... I will do it because, you know, we have to take these things slowly. And I will say that it's been easy at times running a podcast that is more focused on interviews and conversations with others than it is about 
sharing my own voice and my own ideas. It has been quite easy at times to stay comfortable behind the voices of my courageous guests as they share their stories organically, right here, uncut. And allowing my voice to speak through the voices of others who share my values and worldview has at times been easier than standing here to kind of hold the space in my own right. And so that's what I'm doing right now, and it is a little bit scary. If I could go back to being 18 and choose not to put myself into debt to go to college, despite not knowing a thing about the world or my place in it, then I would do that. But I hadn't even ever questioned it, and I think if I had, I would have met a lot of resistance from my family about what should be done and what a person is supposed to do to set themselves up to have a successful and meaningful life. We are taught to fear these going out on a limb kind of things that are really not that out of range. Like, we're not talking about taking on a grizzly bear with our bare hands. Like, you can do this. There are so many pervasive ideas about our value as tied to our ability to produce. And that is a whole mouthful. But we genuinely fear the perception of others. So many of us, if you are not one of those people, then I tip my hat to you, but so many of us fear the perception of others about the choices that we make about how we spend our time and how valuable the outcomes of that time turn out to be in the eyes of a society that values so little that is of such deep importance to us. For example, mental health, self-love, clean water, fertile soil, biodiversity, our ability to guarantee a livable future on this planet. Those things are not so valuable to this society, and so it really gives you an insight into how ridiculous all of these learned conceptions are, but they are powerful. Everyone has different thresholds for tolerating the unknown. Everyone has different thresholds for how much uncertainty they can tolerate before their brains push the panic button. And everyone has different levels of coping mechanisms that can quite easily soothe the fear response without them even noticing, or on the other hand, that are not able to soothe that fear response and that turn into anxiety, catastrophizing, a feeling of, you know, being unwell on some level. And these things can be related to the food that we eat and crave, the self-soothing, self-rewarding mechanisms of like, what is it that you do when you decide that you're going to treat yourself or that you decide you need some stress relief and this is what you're going to go to? You know, be honest with yourself. We don't have to talk about it out loud because there's what we, we think would ideally go to, like stress response. Oh, maybe I should meditate and exercise and sleep more. You know, that's not always how it works out. For some people, it's substances. For some people, it's intimacy, like having that 
affection and physical touch and like physical presence of someone that they feel comforted by. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it is working tirelessly to try to escape that discomfort or maybe it's some kind of external form of validation, for example. But these can be the very things that make us decide when we're considering something that scares us but that we desire, eh, I'll just stay right here where I'm comfortable. Ironically, from the comfort of our normal, well-fed and most optimistic moments, the same transformative changes that cause us anxiety when it's time for action absolutely light up our imaginations with hope and the desire for a bold leap of faith when we imagine them in our heads. This doesn't relate precisely to fear, but it does relate to discomfort. And in our minds and bodies, the difference between these two is primarily a difference of magnitude rather than essential nature. They're not so different. What is interesting is that we go through these same processes on a broader scale when we consider going outside of our comfort zone to do something risky. If we can recognize our psychological and emotional need for tolerable doses of these uncomfortable or uncertain changes we desire but we're unsure about, rather than feeling caught between diving in headfirst and calling it off altogether, then we can ease into growth experiences without abandoning ourselves or losing our sense of emotional and mental stability. Let's talk about some of the specific reasons why we have this ironic contradiction between what we desire and how we take action. First, we focus on the feeling of reward or accomplishment or of who we become through that action when we imagine it positively but we do not focus on the process of getting there when we imagine how to approach it. Say that you imagine yourself starting a nonprofit or starting a business. You might imagine the recognition that you get for this socially um, concerned cause and the need that you're fulfilling in your community you might imagine the social impact that you will be able to catalyze. You might imagine the community building that will become possible or the self-accomplishment of that you will feel when you have become successful in that project. But compare that to the slog of getting started researching your issue and your niche acquiring space to work in, figuring out what kind of tax identity your project is going to have, what kind of legal implications you need to be aware of and need to figure out, building partnerships, getting people to care, raising the money to figure out how to get this thing started. All of that is all of the discomfort that we really don't want to think about until we think about, well, do I want to get this thing started? Um, I would have to quit my existing job. I might have to like sacrifice a lot of time with my family. Those are the things that start to think, help us think, well, maybe this isn't the right time. Or maybe I, you know, 
don't really want to do this. Here's the thing. We start to consider all of those factors and we hear them as like, uh, look at all these difficult things. You probably shouldn't do it because it's going to be hard. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. It is possible. It's possible because others have done it and they're not that different from you. If it is for you, if it is something that you are willing to sacrifice and put in work for, then it is absolutely possible. But what I'm trying to say is that we must bring awareness into the positive imagination that we call up when we feel excited about the idea and put that in contrast to the somewhat daunting and overwhelming more real-life, everyday factors that we consider that may influence our decision not to take action. Another big one for a lot of us is solo travel. There are a couple very real risks here that are worth unpacking. One is the idea that when you're traveling alone in an unfamiliar environment, you're more vulnerable to being taken advantage of or possibly even hurt and helpless. And these fears exist for a good reason. But another fear is the fear of being alone with ourselves. Trying to figure out and imagine and plan for how do we manage this kind of experience without someone to help us figure out our moments of uncertainty when we're doing something that we've never done before. Just being alone in that process of figuring it out. And how do we experience these moments that we dream of putting ourselves into through travel and adventure, these moments that can never be repeated, how do we experience them in solitude? Are we capable of enjoying them without the presence of another witness and companion besides ourselves? The fact is, the idea of something like traveling solo is equal parts compelling and scary. And I would argue that this is the precise recipe for a delicious growth experience. It gives you the opportunity to challenge yourself. It makes the reward of having the experience even greater. And at the same time, the parts that you fear may turn out to be things that aren't so good, they may be things that are there as fears to help you let them go to some degree. There may be aspects of your original vision that you become fixated on because you are hung up on the details of making them work or overcoming the discomfort and uncertainty and worry and anxiety that you feel around them. And it's always worth asking yourselves, are you sure that those parts of your vision are necessary? You may set out as a solo traveler, for example, but more than likely you will meet other travelers along the way and your experience will be a mix of solitude and spontaneous connection, which can be some of the most beautiful connections. And so if the part of this idea that is the most fear-inducing is the thought of doing it in solitude, 
maybe reorient yourself to the fact that it will be a mix of solitude and companionship, spontaneous connection, and visiting communities. Maybe there are ways that you can structure this experience that you're desiring that don't actually call for that much concern around that particular aspect. It also reminds me of the podcast episode that I recorded with Andrea Russell about her solo backpacking trip along the Appalachian Trail. And I remember her speaking about how keeping a photo and video journal as well as a written journal was so meaningful for her and retroactively allowed her to share so much of her journey as she processed it. Because of course it was a huge experience and was something that she processed for a long time in a very active and emotional kind of way after the experience had kind of settled. And so that allowed her to kind of invite friends and community members into the experience retroactively in a way that was very meaningful. A lot of the times, the most meaningful parts of experiences in solitude come after that experience is over and we're processing it. And those can be really beautiful ways of continuing to enjoy what that experience had to offer. In so many ways, we get hung up on the emotionality of our fear and don't go deeper into problem-solving how we might learn from it to find alternatives to aspects of what we envision. When it comes to something like travel, there are so many creative opportunities to connect to hospitality and this spontaneous community. There are things like work trades through organizations such as woofing and work away, as well as learning and teaching centers like Vine and Fig here in Harrisonburg, and spiritual communities such as churches or intentional communities, um, even monasteries and places that are situated differently in different cultures but that have an ingrained history of hospitality that can be so rich to connect to. There are, other, there are also plenty of other communal hospitality options like hostels and mountain huts, which is a topic that I hope to dive into deeply eventually on this podcast. Finding community really becomes key to all of these questions of doing what scares you. Whether or not you have a strong bond to community when you get started, building it through the process is, in my opinion, one of the defining factors that shape the outcome. We don't have to struggle or strive alone. We're taught to be individuals who are successful as individuals and who figured it out themselves, but there is not a lot of joy in that process. Thinking along those lines, I feel, forces us to struggle in silence and only celebrate our story once we've climbed over the hump and found some kind of success or resolved our fears and doubts to things of the past. 
When it comes to more interior fears, such as asking for freedom within relationships, I think building community is equally essential. I received a lot of responses on social media to the topic of this episode that related to the desire and fear of breaking free from loved ones. One possible reason why so many people fear this very natural desire for freedom within commitment is because of the cultural hard drives we have inherited around the lifespan of our relationships. We're told a very predictable and consistent one-size-fits-all story again and again about our relationships, whether romantic, friendships, or family, and how they are determined at their inception, and for them to change would be a betrayal of their foundation and of the whole person on the other side of it. Think about love at first sight, best friends forever, the love of your life, and even the idea of chosen family. I know that my own culture hasn't given me the tools to remain secure in my relationships while asking for the very nature of them to change. And I believe this is true across many cultures. I would be curious to hear reflections on this topic if you have a different experience. But let's use romantic relationships as an example. We're taught that committed, loving, safe relationships are scarce and that our deservingness of those relationships are even scarcer. What could be scarier than that message? But it's all that we see reproduced through social media and pop culture, and unfortunately for many of us through our personal experience. So when we think we've found a healthy and good partner, we're really programmed to work really hard to protect it from anything that seems threatening. And this can include change. But we're supposed to change. It's how we grow. So in very subconscious, subsurface ways, our growth can easily be perceived as a threat to our relationships on the ends of our partners or in our own minds. Yet at the same time, we crave security and certainty. We also crave adventure and novelty. It's part of the contradiction of our human nature. And we can see this contradiction and tension replicated across so many cultural symbols that it seems to be a universal truth. The yin and the yang, the Piscean fish swimming in opposite directions, the phoenix which is created through destruction. Again, Finding community is a clarifying force in this exploration of our human contradictions that can feel so risky and so costly, especially when it comes to modern love. We can't undo all our social conditioning by ourselves, and we can't place the burden of that immense work on a single relationship or a single partner that's not fair and it's not realistic. It takes the voices experiences, and reflections of many of us sharing openly and broadening our circles of trust to destigmatize our fears and desires around freedom and security and expression and knowing and being known, which requires us to be vulnerable together in public within circles of trust. 
trying to create some distance between the emotionality of that fear and its source, a malleable life situation that may have more possible solutions than you're able to see from your place of fear, is always more possible when we see our experiences reflected in others and realize that we aren't alone. Third, we lack role models and don't see our ideas reflected around us in the world. And so we don't have as much of a sense of other people have done this, I know for that reason that I can do it, it is possible. That can be very difficult to feel that we are doing something that is so outside of the norm that it feels dangerous because why haven't other people done this? Disclaimer, they have, you just don't know them, you don't know their stories. That's why I have a podcast like this one. Final point. We will naturally act in alignment with the idea of who we believe we are, even if we believe that version of ourselves is holding us back from who we want to become. Whew. This one deserves a sip of tea because that one is a doozy. The stories that we tell ourselves about who we are have consequence. This is for a couple of reasons. First of all, there is a concept called confirmation bias that you can find in any psychology blog or textbook that says basically we seek to confirm our existing beliefs and so we will actually look for evidence that confirms what we already believe even when we think oh look at this evidence this just proves that what I believe is already true it's actually often the other way around. We form a belief and we seek subconsciously seek out evidence that confirms that belief because we want to believe that we are right. Subconsciously, our brains do this all of the time. We seek to confirm our existing beliefs. What kind of person do you believe that you are? Ask yourself that. What kind of person do you believe that you are? Fill in this sentence. When you think about an action that you could potentially take, do you think, I am the type of person who blank? You might think, I would love to learn to play an instrument, but I'm not a musical person. I would love to go out dancing with my friends, but I'm just not the kind of person who has any rhythm. I would love to start my own business, but I'm not the kind of person who can pull it off. When you think about an action that you could potentially take, you filter it through your ingrained self-image and ask yourself, am I the type of person who would take this action? We do this subconsciously. What are you telling yourself about your worth compared to other people who have successfully done the things that you want to do if you tell yourself, I'm not the type of person who can do that thing. You are ingraining the idea in your head that there is something essentially lesser about you that explains why you have not done these things while others have. When in reality, 
you are probably not that different from the people who have done the things that you want to do. You just haven't dedicated the time, practice, and consistency to learning how to do those things. And maybe that's not because of the type of person that you are. Maybe it's just because you don't really want to do it badly enough to commit the time. A fruit tree can only produce so many fruits. It needs to be pruned, not just when it is in its dormant season, but also when you see fruits forming that you know aren't going to make it before the season of frost. You have to prune out branches that are fruiting fruits that are not going to ripen into their full forms because that way the tree can concentrate its energy and the sugars that it must send to the fruits that have the best chance to fully ripen and become their fullest, most delicious selves. Become your fullest and most delicious self. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. And all fruit trees have a tendency to produce very small fruits that are not quite so sweet when they do not undergo that care, that process of care that humans have the joy of offering in relationship to these trees, of pruning when we notice that fruit is not going to have the time it needs to become full, ripe, sweet, and delicious. Sometimes when something feels so insurmountable that it becomes scary, it's worth asking yourself, am I in immediate danger if I put myself in this situation? Or does it just feel dangerous because I don't know what's going to happen? Let's talk about some ways that we can start to shift our attitudes towards the things that we dream of putting into action but block ourselves from following through on because we are afraid. First thing, know why you want to pursue it. If you're going to push yourself to go beyond your comfort zone, you are going to need energy for focus and consistent practice, bringing in the support that you're going to need to succeed, and following through. Consistency is everything. Discipline is freedom. You can't devote the energy to everything that you would potentially, hypothetically, be interested in doing to become really skilled and successful in that thing because it requires energy, focus, consistency, and practice. If the thought of doing something scares you, it's either because you think it is dangerous or because you really really want it. So the question that you need to ask yourself is how far in the future do you see yourself wanting it? Is, something, is this something that will become part of who you are, become part of your lifestyle, or is it something that you are doing for the external validation of a person or a public appearance that you plan to make or a bucket list item that is going to help you determine the amount of energy that you are able to devote to that thing because the truth is that it takes time, especially it takes time to do things that you think are so huge that they scare you. 
If you really want it and it scares you, it will require energy. So why waste that energy on something for reasons that you do not even know how to identify? Your why becomes your how. Your why becomes your how. If you know why you want to do something, the how will become clear to you because you are willing to put in the work and the discipline to build the practices that will emerge through your process of figuring it out to become that thing that you dream of. So your why becomes your how. Just really focus on that principle and the values behind your why. What are the values that are driving this desire? Number two, this section, I really need to give credit to Alexis Fernandez, who has a podcast called Do You Fucking Mind that is about neuroscience and habit forming. And she has so many great tools for these kinds of things. But one thing that she says is, We overestimate what we can do in a day, but we underestimate what we can do in a year. Start small. So many goals become discarded and abandoned because we think that we can, because we try to start bigger than what we're actually capable of. We think that we want to change so much in such a short amount of time. We get so impatient to become this person who in reality takes time and nurturing to grow. The people that you admire for what they have achieved are not intrinsically smarter or more talented or capable than you. Most often, they have just dedicated the disciplined consistency of practice where you may have tried for a short enough time to decide that it was too hard. But, you know, if you really stick to things, then it's about starting small because you have the time. You know you're committed to this thing. You have the time to start with something small and manageable and then build up consistent wins until you can see progress and never frown on progress. If you want to implement healthier movement in your day-to-day life, and you have struggled to stick with the effort in the past, start with something extremely simple. So this is another Alexis thing. 10 squats, 10 jumping jacks, and 10 push-ups every single day. The beauty of this is that it takes less than five minutes to do. If I were to ask you, can you do this five-minute routine for your health practice every single day for the rest of your life, you would probably say yes, because doing 10 squats 10 jumping jacks and 10 push-ups every single day is not that hard. But if you are starting at, you know, the most simple where you just do not have a consistent practice in your day-to-day life, this is something that you can do every day for the rest of your life. It will give you benefits right away and it's something that you can build on. Those three points are where you want to start when constructing this idea of a simple, manageable goal. Something that you can do consistently forever. Like, 
ideally every day for the rest of your life, this is something you can do, that's a place to start. This becomes something that is part of who you are. It gives you benefits right away. 10 squats, jumping jacks, and 10 push-ups, all of a sudden, your heart rate is up. There's more blood going to your brain. It's releasing, that blood in your brain circulation is releasing endorphins that actually cause you to feel more energized, more focused, more alert, more motivated, happier. These types of movements can actually like relieve a sense of feeling fatigued. They can boost your mood because these are all the chemicals in your body that are reliant on movement and blood circulation to circulate. And so anything that gets your heart rate up will be somewhat effective in creating immediate benefits right away. And if this is too easy for you, then you build on it from there. You might think that starting with something so simple is pointless because why should I congratulate myself for doing something that is so easy for me? But that's not the case. It's not the case at all because it's manageable and you will show yourself that you mean what you say and that you can keep promises to yourself. And this is incredibly important because it builds a sense of self-pride and confidence that you can change. The brain starts to wire that pathway that says, every day I know I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna do my 10 squats, my jumping jacks, my push-ups, and then I get to have breakfast. And your brain starts to outsource that pathway of Workout, get reward, breakfast, it's easy, I did it, I actually feel good. And it becomes easier. You decrease resistance to this thing. Maybe it's something that requires you to carve out time to really step away from your daily routine, like solo travel or backpacking, hitchhiking, traveling to another country, something like that. Ask yourself if you can do a controlled, smaller version of this where someone is watching out for you and you can feel out the experience in a more supported container. If it's something that you really want to try but the fear of figuring it out or taking that first step is really what's holding you back, I don't see why you have to start so big. Can you try a smaller version of this as a one-night or weekend-length trip? And just kind of get a sense of your systems and what the experience feels like on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour basis. What are some of the things that you really enjoy about it and what are some of the things that feel like a challenge or even an annoyance? Figuring some of that stuff out would be so helpful before going on this big, enormous thing that you might not have an easy out for and that you won't have the time to kind of reflect and fine-tune your systems toward as well. And so just consider that as maybe a practice run for something that can also reduce the fear associated with doing so many things for the first time and feeling like you're in way over your head. Number four is really at the essence of everything that I've been saying. Build community. Find other people who are interested in the thing you want to do and perhaps have some experience in doing it as well. Doing it well. Doing it at a high quality level. 
there are always going to be people who are more informed and experienced than you are and who could literally save you years of your life trying to figure out how to do a thing on your own and would be more than happy to do it because it's something that is meaningful and passion-inspiring to them. We're often caught up in the emotionality of our resistance and fear when the specters of unknowns loom in front of us, and it can cause us to subconsciously shoot down the possibility that we could find solutions and get help. And community can really help mitigate some of these internal, like, defense mechanisms that create a lot of blind spots for us. For example, if I feel disempowered to ever go on my own solo backpacking trip because I don't know anyone who's ever done it before, and I'm not familiar with the local trail networks, I don't know what gear I should get or how much money it would cost me, and at the end of all of that, I'm still unsure if I would even enjoy it, if I can really get into a negative mindset where I'm just shooting down possible sources of helpful information and support without even realizing that I'm doing that. Because, again, we want to confirm our existing biases. And this is even more so the case when we're in a heightened state of emotionality. When I get really frustrated about something annoying that is happening to me, I find it very easy to get into a negative confirmation mindset where I'm making absolute statements about that thing that aren't necessarily true, but that confirm my position as this helpless victim of the situation. Maybe my internet always fails to work when I need to submit an assignment, or my housemates never sweep the floor, and I'm always the one who does it. These statements, while vindicating, are just not true. And the problem is that they feel so vindicating that we often latch onto them and they become truth in our heads. So if my partner then sees me struggling with the internet as I'm trying to submit an assignment and suggests that I connect to the ethernet cord, which is literally a direct link between the source of internet and my computer, I'm still more inclined to reject that useful solution because in my head I'm thinking, what's the point? It's not going to work because the internet never works when I need it to. And the other part of that is that I hadn't thought of the ethernet cord solution, and so it's less familiar to me and I'm going to be more resistant to it when I'm in a hyper-emotional state. Like, I don't want to take the time to do something unfamiliar to me because that's just another source of stress when I'm already in this state of heightened emotionality. The same is so often true when we turn over the same dilemmas in our head about the things that scare us, and our inability to see new solutions to our problems have us believing that there are no solutions. So widening your field of possibilities and your social resilience by seeking out a tight community of trust with people who have the same desires of, as you can be super helpful. Not to mention the fact that this thing that was formerly a source of resistance becomes a source of nourishment through these relationships that nourish you and that are built on shared desires. Anxiety thrives on what we don't know, so do your research. Because with endless possibilities of what could go wrong, 
your mind is going to find endless opportunities to feel anxious and possibly even catastrophize. Get clear on what you are thinking of trying and research what doing it would actually require of you. Becoming more informed about the potential reality minimizes fear of the unknown. It helps you prepare and it returns a sense of control to you through how you equip yourself to respond as you feel things out. And so do your research. And number five, set time blocks. This is helpful in two ways. It gives you an escape valve. If you're putting yourself in a situation that creates a lot of fear and anxiety for you, and it also manages your expectations so that you can really regulate any sense of negative anticipation by saying like, yeah, okay, so I know this is going to be unpleasant, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm doing this for an hour, I'm doing this for 20 minutes, and then I'm gone. I'm back into my little cocoon of comforting and happy thoughts. Again, fear is an expectation that something will present danger or pain to you. And so if you can manage that expectation by being like, 20 minutes, I can tolerate that, then do that. It's so much more beneficial to you to do a small amount of time every single day than to do, for example, six intensive hours of it once a week. Because you are building familiarity and pathways that strengthen in the brain. You are getting into a routine with something and it's becoming habitualized so that you do not have to feel this sense of resistance to it. When it comes to figuring out new ways to do things we were once accustomed to, we anticipate the uncertainty and tend to avoid or dread it. And sometimes what is needed is a way for our minds to just switch off and do it. Another way to approach this, number six, make it a game. No one wants to slog their way into a new version of themselves. No one wants that. The more that we layer the baggage of personal changes being work and this thing that we have to like exert ourselves and like drag ourselves into the thought of taking that first step or staying consistent will be so much more difficult and we will just avoid it avoid it avoid it see if there's someone else who can go through it with you it's obviously much more fun when you have like an accountability buddy like you're working on something together and that increases so much of the enjoyment of doing that thing Make it a whole process, like maybe if you your goal is to give up refined sugar, is there someone who can, you know, make a whole day of it together, two of you go out shopping together, find cool recipes to try, cook some delicious sweet potato fries on a Sunday afternoon and have a damn picnic, like make it enjoyable and more specifically to my point of making it a game challenge your imagination my instructor in 
my pole dancing class the other day was telling me that to keep her training fresh, a game that she plays is she goes back through her pole curriculum and will take one move from each level and incorporate it into a routine, adding more complexity to things here and there because she is now more advanced than when she signed off on those moves ages ago and forgot about them. And as she goes from the more beginner moves to the more advanced moves, she'll move from the ground into the air and kind of thread together an interesting routine that breaks out of her habitual combinations, like doing the same two combinations every time you get up on the pole because you've simply fallen into the routine of it. And that actually challenges the imagination to like invent new choreography, to find new shapes, to move the body in different ways. And it's very, very beneficial. Number seven, emphasize the process over the outcome. Change takes time and it also yields a lot of growth. Don't become too fixated on the outcome and miss the pleasure of taking it one step at a time possibly small, incremental, and slow steps. And just watch who you become and where you find yourself by staying present through the process. Last one, but certainly not least, reward. When you do take some of those small steps toward larger action, no matter how insignificant they seem at the time, Make it a big deal. Celebrate yourself. And so you don't do anything for no reward. Celebrate every small step. Celebrate those 10 jumping jack squats and push-ups and say, fuck yeah, I did that. Fuck yeah, I did that. This is something so important because without that celebration, where is your motivation going to come from? to keep trying the next day. As I said, if it's just work and you're slogging through your way into a new version of yourself, you are going to fall into these same patterns of avoiding the the uncomfortable thing, avoiding the uncertain thing, avoiding that thing that is associated with all of these negative emotions. Well, you don't get to celebrate yet because this is just doing the bare minimum. This is just what you have to do. And so when you celebrate those small steps, find ways to give yourself healthy rewards that actually feed into your goals. And that will help you to cultivate self-pride and self-confidence. You will enjoy the process more you will build a sense of capability, like I am capable of doing this thing that scares me a little bit, but step by step, here I am going through the process and doing it anyway. And you will start to see that you can keep promises to yourself, that you can trust in the intentions that you set when you feel at your most empowered, that you are capable of change, that you are capable of transformation. And this sense of self-pride and self-trust, it is the foundation of self-love. 
this is, these are the small actions that are going to set, you, set yourself up to be stronger in your ability to cultivate happiness in the present moment and a sense of peace with yourself. So make your reward something that is compatible with your original goal, something that makes you feel good about yourself, that feels like a treat, it feels like a celebration. Just don't make it something that actively goes against the goal that you are working toward. But reward yourself abundantly because you deserve it. So to wrap up the conversation, the question really is, what are you inspired to do with your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver asks us? The people that you admire for their success or lifestyle are probably not exceptionally different from you. What you don't see is all of the minuscule actions that add up to this achievement that seems so grand and exceptional. The defining factor is really how you break down your reasoning for wanting it as well as your reason for resisting. And target those built-in protective mechanisms in our minds that want us to stay comfortable and safe, to reduce resistance to the things that are challenging us to grow. Build motivation to be in that disciplined practice and essentially cultivate trust in yourself and self-love by proving that you're more capable of what you thought. We are taught to fear going outside of seemingly safe options for the work that is available for us to do and be paid for because we live in a society that leads us to believe our worth and security is obtained through material wealth. But as I've said before, and I'll say again, with my chest, there are more creative and fulfilling ways to provide for ourselves than what we are often bold enough to believe. And all you need to do to get the flavor of what some of those possible futures and lives are is to listen to any of the incredible guests that I have had the pleasure of speaking with in conversation on this podcast. So do what scares you, don't be afraid to grow, and remember, pollinate your wildest dreams.